Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Priscilla Ward, who is Professor of English and Gender, Sexuality and Feminist Studies at Duke University. She works on U.S. literature and culture, contemporary narratives of science and medicine, science fiction literature and film, law and environmental studies. Welcome, Priscilla. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, These topics are of great interest to me, even though I know nothing about them. Uh, <laughs> I want to say neither do I. No, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so we have a couple of papers, and we have your book. We can talk about. But uh, I want to start with your sort of earlier papers, 2006, blood and stories of genomics is rewriting race, medicine, and human history. You say here in 2003, Harvard University announced its intention to create a data bank of the DNA of African-Americans, most of whom were patients in the medical center. Proponents of the decision invoked the routine exclusion of African-Americans from research that would give them access to the most up-to-date medical technologies and treatments. They argued that this data bank would rectify such exclusions. Opponents, however, argued that such a move tacitly affirmed the biological genetic basis of race that had long fueled racism, as well as the potential cause, but not worth the uncertain benefits. So I can understand both sides of this, Priscilla. I, I was at a pharmaceutical company <laughs> a long time ago, and uh, I am keenly aware of the, the value of such data and information. On the other hand, I am also keenly aware of uh, all the racist questions, or race-related questions, I should say, mm-hmm. and giving some sort of, um, I don't know what the right term is, um, giving it value uh, this way uh, creates some issues, societally speaking, right? So 
So, so what is what? Where, where do you come out on this debate between these two factions? Um, <laughs> very uh, note. I mean, I guess where where I come out mostly is noting the ambiguity, and that that is created. Both of these things are created by racism, um, both explicit racism and structural racism. So racism has given us a scientific dilemma. On the, you know, as you said, you you um, you know you uh, phrased it very well. That um, on the one hand, we're not going to be you know people, the the people whose blood is not available for testing and genetic makeup is not available from test for testing, um, will get left out of experiments. Yeah. On the other hand, right, and the development of pharmaceuticals and things like that, if if race is even a factor in those things. And that's a big question, right? That that varies widely. But on the other hand, the misuse of that information is a significant problem. So if you're, there, there is no great answer to that question. The, you asked me where I come down. I come down on saying, we really need to address the racism because it is presenting us with this among so many other dilemmas. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. So I just came through it and I saw Spencer Wells in this paper. I'm a huge fan of Spencer Wells, so I'll put my bias out there. <laughs> and um, I'm not. So, yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, and uh, when National Geographic started the program that Spencer Wells put together, I was one of the first guys who actually did my own um, thing on my dad's side, on my mom's side. Uh, and I'm from a family in, you know, South India, uh, a, place, a place called Kerala. It, it, there is no known um, information that the family ever left that area ever for 20 or 30, 40 generations. But my heat map on my dad's side showed up in Rome, Netherlands, Spain, and other places. Um, India is a little bit of a complicated story, and, and, and I wanted you to talk about um, what Spencer did and all the, all the things that he has talked about. But India is a bit of a complicated story because it was a gateway. Um, it, it, the place that I grew up is a gateway to India for Europeans. So tactical mixing, um, I would say maybe, you know, last thousand years, change um, your genome as well. And so, so, so let's just put the context and the background for Spencer Wells' work. What, what exactly was he trying to accomplish? So he was, he had been a postdoc of Luca Luigi Cavalli Sforza, who was a, um, maybe still is, I don't know, Stanford geneticist. I think he's retired. Um, I don't know. But um, I wrote, that essay you're talking about is the most polemical essay I've ever written. And I wrote it out of real frustration bordering on outrage about the film journey of man and i had been doing work on these questions of genomics and the research that was being done especially in indigenous communities there was a group that arose in the u.s called the indigenous people's council on biocolonialism that was talking about this work as exploitive in many many ways and if you ask me where i come down on that issue i come down with that group 100 percent mm -hmm. Um, Luke Cavalli-Sforza did not understand. He said, no, but, but if we have these scientific 
information, you know, this will be, you know, racism isn't scientific, he said. Um, the problem was he did not understand, particularly in a U.S. context, how uh, scientific information does not exist in, an, in isolation. I certainly am not accusing him of racism. I've never met the guy. What he didn't understand was how information can get misused. And that's exactly, you know, what what Troy Duster's concerns say about the, uh, an um, African-American sociologist, what his concern is uh, with the with the Howard uh, Data Bank. And um, so the problem it was with that original research and Cavalli Schwarza kept saying, but we need this information and we're going to lose these, uh, you know, these tribes are, are going extinct and which is not even true, but whatever. Um, yeah. And that we have to quickly get this information. And the tribes were saying, for whom? How are you using it? What are we getting as a result? Hmm. Um, there's a real difference in, in understanding about like property and identity between indigenous culture and mainstream, you know, scientific US European culture. And um, the tribes were saying, you know, individual genomes are not exclusively the property of an individual. The, this is, you know, our identity is tribal. We have this collective identity. And so when an individual is giving this information, uh, they're giving information for the tribe. We don't support that. This is what the IPCB said. Um, and so there were a lot of arguments about this. And Cavalli Sforza was adamant about doing this work and not um, not really paying attention to these important critiques and, and the information that people were trying to share with him. So um, it was originally federal, federally funded. Yeah, yeah. And um, the uh, government was convinced and removed the funding. So the journey of man was an effort to continue this work privately funded by National Geographic. Mm. So it was trying to get around this problem and the federal government's decision that yes, there you know there was a very strong case that these indigenous peoples groups were making. So that was my first problem. Then, uh, if you watch the film, it is full of inaccuracies. It is full of misleading claims. And I would argue that some of them, many of them are racist. Mm. And um, the carelessness of the narrative of the film is really shocking. And when I finally decided to write the essay, it was when my kids came home and said they were seeing it in school, that this right. was being shown to them. The, the film, for one thing, in very broad, I mean, I, I can't get into each specific detail that I yeah. am concerned with, but the overall problem um, was this nar this progressive narrative as though civilization was moving westward. It was this classic Euro-American imperialist narrative of like, now we're getting civilized. Now we have science. You have your quaint stories, but we have science. Our story is science. It's mm -hmm. true. It's not. It's interpretation. Sure, there's science involved and it's fascinating science. And sure, I'm interested in what genetics might tell us about the migration of peoples, but it's not 100% accurate. It's still going through an interpretation. And it and what really troubles me is a particular form of narrative that says 
you know, we in this group who know science, who are generally, you know, who are Western, who are, you know, Euro-American, often white, right? We uh, are, are up to date. And these other cultures are part of our past. There's literally an image in the show where they show pictures of people who are alive now, or you know, in 2006, right? Contemporaries of Spencer Wells, and he says, "These are our ancestors." I'm like, "No, these are our contemporaries. <laughs> this is terrible." So, so I'm interested in the narrative, but I'm also interested in how the science, and, and particularly how the science is being used in the narrative, and how the narrative is is positioning the science. But I'm also, you know, interested in the science itself, the claims that it's making for itself, and the fact that we don't hear enough about how a lot of this is interpretation, not only in terms of the story I'm telling you, but in terms of what when when you had your ancestry analyzed, there were only certain parts of your genome that mm. they were looking at because nucleic DNA is too complex to right. do. And so you're only getting guesswork. I mean, it's yes. informed guesswork. I don't, I'm not saying it's equivalent to like, you know, if I played tiddlywinks and, you know, and told you what your ancestry was. Yes, there is science and it's fascinating, but it's not the whole story. And I don't like the way it's being, uh, presented and sold to people and how people are then feeling that they can use this. Uh, there's a lot of danger to that. Yeah, I, I see that. Uh, so, so, so just that the audience know, um, so I have a bias toward the science <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm basically a data-driven guy. So information is always useful, uh, but when you have a blank sheet of paper, and you have half a million years of um, migration to, to really sort of map out, no process is going to be perfect. Yes. Um, there is, uh, obviously what Spencer did is not perfect, but it gives us some interesting information, I think, right? I, I am not anti-science by any stretch, yeah. and I'm not saying don't present scientific information, but be careful how you present. Yes. It's about communication, right? How what I mean, I am I am concerned with doing research on a group of people that hasn't given you permission and where you don't understand the cultural ramifications. So if somebody says we are objecting to this research, I, I want that listened to, right? Mm. That's one question. But in terms of what you're talking about, doing the um, the general migration research on the genomes and, and all of that. That's totally fine, but yes. explain to people, or the ancestry, but explain to people that this is only one interpretation of this story, that it's much more complex than we are being told. Just give people the background. And then secondly, be careful about the context in which that information is circulating. And mm -hmm. this is why some of the other people that I quote in that essay, who are scientists, who are doing the science, are saying, we need people who study racism. We need people, and culture. We need people from the humanities, from anthropology, which is sometimes a science, you know, that, that's hard to classify, cultural anthropology or, or you know, uh, uh, 
feminist studies or African-American, you know, triple uh, AS, African-African-American studies or, you know, critical race theory, whatever. We need people who study those things who can tell us the context in which our information is circulating and what some of the um, dangers of that are so that we can be more careful about how we do the research and how we communicate about the research. Mm. This is why I love this conversation so much, Priscilla. You know, um, it's, so, yeah, so I agree with the communication aspects of it. I agree with um, how societies might internalize this information. And I, I agree that the interpretation is just one interpretation. But in the absence of other interpretations, let's say, and we want to rewind time 300,000, 400,000 years, um, it's a useful notion because we have 8 billion people, we have three religions that seem to dominate half, half of that population, and much of this religions, religious people, um, if I can use that term, believe that the world started 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that, that's a very problematic concept. Absolutely, of course, of course. And we have fossils. You know, we have archaeology and and uh, geology um, and, you know, plenty of sciences to tell us otherwise. And um, as I say, I am I am very pro science. I wouldn't do this research if I didn't have a, a fascination for science, a love of science. Um, you know, I'm working now in a lot doing a lot of work on climate change and environment and <laughs> Science is important. I do a lot of medical, you know, the book that you want to talk about is about pandemics, such as the one we just lived through. And I wanted people to take the vaccine. I just, you know, I and I didn't push anybody, you know, who was scared of it or whatever. But but I wanted proper information going out. That's the same concern I have. Right. I have the whether the concern is I I am concerned with accuracy. You know, there was very important, very accurate information going out, going around about the vaccine. And then there was crazy stuff, right? Um, it, it People who said, I'm nervous about a vaccine that hasn't been around for a long time. I understood that. That's not unreasonable. To me, weighing the options, it was a very easy choice. I didn't even think about it. The minute I could get that vaccine, I was there. Um, so I get that. But at the same time, to me, that the importance of that accurate knowledge going around and and accurate knowledge about what COVID was and how it spread and what kinds of treatments were available and not to drink bleach, you know, things like that, (laughs) very, very important. But it's also very important, similarly, same kind of important to look at racism which is also very real in our world and to communicate accurately about racism. Mm. And when science is the thing that is distorting that, then we have to talk differently about science. Mm. Right? So, so let's sort of dissect one, one thing in journey oh, can of I, man. Can I just, I'm sorry, well, can I just correct yeah. what I just said? Yeah. It's not science that's distorting it. It's yes. the use of science and how it's being communicated, not the science, but how we talk about the science. How is also, if I gather this correctly, Priscilla, you're also saying how it's interpreted. So there's a sort of uncertainty around information 
you could have different interpretations of the same information. And so you cannot really imagine it to be precise, right? I mean, that is one complication. So, so I want to take one thing out of Journey of Man, um, just to just to sort of uh, analyze that. And I think both of our perspectives can be put into this. So um, Journey of Man was about looking at, if I remember this correctly, Priscilla, so 20 years ago, looking at disease progression of Homo sapiens, and then using that for migration paths, migration patterns. And one of the patterns Spencer Wells found was out of Africa, the Bush people, into the Middle East, into India, uh, into Indonesia, into Australia. And he argues that the, the Aborigines of Australia, the dark-skinned people in, in South India, and the Bushmen of, of Africa all carry the same genes. And hence he argues they must have traveled these, these distances. Now, I, I found that argument sort of believable, um, but, but I don't know where, where you come out on that. I mean, I think that's a reasonable guess or interpretation, right? But the question I would ask is, have you exhausted all possibilities? You can say this is the likeliest possibility, but it's also possible that they were mutations that both arose independently, the same mutation. That's not unheard of. It's not impossible. And I think it's very, very important to explain to people all the possibilities and why you've chosen the one that you've chosen. You know, is it most likely that... Um, you know that that the uh, um, that migration is the best explanation, rather than the, you know, what are the chances that the same mutation is going to happen completely independently? Probably less than migration, but not impossible. So yeah, let's yeah. let's hear about that, right? That's what I'm yeah. saying. It's not impossible, but it, we're talking about fairly short time horizons. They're talking about maybe 200,000 years mm -hmm. in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty short. And so if you if you find patterns in the scientific data, it's, it's probably pointing to the hypothesis to be true. Now, I mean, we don't know if we have all the data. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's sort of a random sampling, it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, and again, if if he if he gave the explanation that you just gave, and said this is possible, but here's why this is more likely. Yeah. Not only do I find that more responsible, but it's more interesting because I've learned something about science from that explanation. And the more you explain clearly why you've come to a particular conclusion. The more you're teaching people who want to learn, I mean, the people who don't yeah, want to hear you don't want to hear you, but, you know, explanations go a long, long way. I'm a parent, right? And I never said to my kids because I said so. I told them why they needed to do something or why something was true or why I believed something was true. Because you are then respecting your audience 
you are allowing them to come to an understanding of something on their own terms. And you're not asking them just to believe you because you're the authority. And I think one of the reasons, one of the, there are so many reasons why <laughs> the communication around COVID was a disaster. Um, and this may, this is not the most of them, but there is a tendency uh, for say medical professionals or scientists to say, I'm the expert and here's, here's the truth. Tell me how you got to that truth and I'm more likely to believe you. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's a good, that's an important thing. So, so one of the things, if, if I understand this correctly, Priscilla, what you're saying is that also, so let's go back to that uh, track between African Bushmen, uh, South India, Indonesia, Austrian Aborigines. And we go, go to them and say, hey, we found in science, you guys are all the same. Uh, it is it is a pretty dramatic um, change from a cultural perspective, right? So right. this is what scientists, and I'm I'm not a scientist, but I'm sort of like one of. <laughs> we don't particularly care about the feelings of cultures, and you know humans in general. What data says is what what the truth is. And I have fierce debates with my classmates on WhatsApp and all of that. And I always say, you know, just look at the data. I mean, nothing else really matters. Except that data is so variable. I mean, it depends on what you put in. What you what you get out depends a lot on the categories you've chosen to investigate and how you've organized your information. And we've seen a million times that not a million, you know, we see so frequently think of all the medical studies that tell you x y and z and then you find out there were all these variables that weren't accounted for you know another study comes out and is critical and says actually no you know broccoli it doesn't cause cancer i don't know if you remember there was a <laughs> kid that broccoli caused cancer uh, my mother stopped serving broccoli um so you know these it's not a good vegetable i just don't like it so oh, I love broccoli. It should be causing cancer. Ah, no, 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 no. I love broccoli. You just haven't had it prepared well. Come to my house. I'll make you good broccoli. <laughs> um, but, but you know what I'm saying? And, and, you know, Spencer Wells in that film is so disrespectful of the storyteller he talks to from, I can't remember if he's in New Zealand. I think he's in New Zealand, maybe Australia. But he's telling them, this is what the science says. You know, it's our story and it's the correct one. And the guy is saying, well, that's not what my story said. <laughs> so, you know, that's where I think, and then Spencer Wells, there's a voiceover. He says, I'm getting very good at this. And I think, no, you are not. You look arrogant and disrespectful that I'm shocked by what you, by the conversation I just saw, right? And to be respectful of someone's story, you don't, you can explain, you know, here's what we think and here's why we think it. And someone else says, well, we have these stories and, I mean, if if identity is rooted in those stories, it's complicated to just come at someone and say, well, your story's wrong. You know, try, as you were saying, of people who, who believe in, you know, creationism, and I'm having a conversation with them about Darwin, I'm not going to say, well, you know, to, I'm not going to convince them or make my, my, you know, make them feel respected if my first gambit is, well, you know, 
my story's right and yours is wrong. Mine is supported by science and yours is like silly, right? That's basically, I don't, I do believe in, in Darwinian science. I do think that people who think that creationism and Darwin are two versions of science. No, I'm not willing to go there. And it's certainly not in a, in a school kind of curriculum. And I will explain why, and it has to do with, you know, what evidence both of them bring to the table. So, so yes, that's one extreme, but am I going to convince that individual and show respect if I don't hear out why their story is important to them and try to find a way, you know, around it rather than, hey, your story's wrong because I'm the expert. Yeah, so that's interesting, Priscilla. So, so what, what you're talking about is sort of the implementation of information. Mm -hmm. So even if the scientist has the right information, right. the question remains, how do you implement that information on a larger population? Right. Culturally very diverse. They have their own stories. They have their own belief systems. Many of them have their own religions. And the question is, how do you rectify? <laughs> right. Well, rectify not the right term, but yeah. Yeah, no, sorry, sorry about that. No, um, no, no. I, this is a different question from the one we were talking about before. Before I was talking about the accuracy. Yeah. Now, you know, I believe that there is a real case to be made for the migration interpretation. What I was troubled by, that now we're getting into how do you persuade people, which is yeah. a different, right? This is a different set of questions. It's equally important because without that, you can't go anywhere. Really. Right, right. right. So we're talking about communication in all of these cases. Let me tell you one example though, of where I found a real flaw in that film that spoke volumes to me. This was my moment where I said, ah, you know, where are we here? Spencer Wells is standing in a Teutonic, in a German forest. And he has been saying, these are, you know, we're all out of Africa. These are our ancestors. That's what this whole message is. We all share the same, you know, basic heritage, we all came from here, okay? Now he's standing and, and he says, you know, this is my cousin, this is, you know, he does this whole number, right? When he, when he visits the first group. Then he's standing in a German forest and he says, my ancestors came from here. And I'm like, I thought you said your ancestors came from Africa. <laughs> what are we saying here? That okay. is my problem with any kind of population study is where do you decide when that population begins, when you're gonna be looking at the branches, right? So we see things branching off. We look at certain uh, mutations, not other mutations, and we make conclusions based on that. So, you know, there's a whole science to it. And I think it's very important for geneticists to explain when they define a population, when they're looking at ancestry, how far back are they going? when they study a particular mutation and the first time they see mutation, the mutation is in this place at this time, is it possible they might discover that it came from a different place earlier? Is that possible that they don't have all the information yet? Or in what cases have they so thoroughly mapped the human genome that they can you know, tell us the first time this mutation appears is at this place at this time? All of those things are important information that the general public is not getting. That makes a difference. Right. Yeah. yeah that's, I mean, the reason I 
I really like Spencerville's data is that I look at two countries, the largest and the oldest democracies in the world. Both of them are large countries. And both countries, the, the population of these countries don't seem to have a very clear understanding of homo sapiens in general, right? Um, they have their religions, they have their biases, they believe they are so much smarter than everybody else. <laughs> Uh, and, and just to put them on an even keel, to say all 8 billion are approximately the same uh, because we just started 300,000 years ago from a singular point in Africa, put them in their place in some way. And uh, that's really attractive to me. Well, I'm, I'm okay with that if I don't then hear him say my ancestors came from here <laughs> as though that moment in Germany is a break from that other ancestry that he's been giving us. Mm, That's faulty, yeah, completely faulty. And any population exists in a particular time and place, and and they're they're messy because how many populations are genuinely isolated for long enough periods of time that we can really, you know, draw those boundaries? And there's an arbitrariness to what we're labeling a population when which you know which mutations we're going to prioritize in the in that particular story mm. so my question is what information are we circulating at any given point and why and there's a, he's he's changing the narrative at that point mm. without telling us how and why he's changing mm. that narrative and that so you're giving, I find you're sort of rewriting history in some ways Mm-hmm. And, yep. and that's, that's problematic. Um, so and so it becomes a very yeah. white history, a very <laughs> white Euro-American history at a certain point. And it's and he does use the word progress. And I'm just like, man, buddy, that is a loaded term. <laughs> right. So, so I want to go to another paper. Um, it's entitled, What's in a Cell? John Moore's Spleen and Language Bioslavery. So I know nothing about this, uh, Priscilla. So who's John Moore? What's so special about the spleen? And what's bioslavery? <laughs> okay. So John Moore was um, a, a white man from, um, I think he was like a seltzer salesman or something. And, uh, and he was living, um, was he living in Seattle? I can't remember, that was a while ago. Anyway, um, he had leukemia, hairy cell leukemia. And what part of the treatment was the he w- went in for surgery to remove his spleen. And that was part of his treatment for cancer. One of the things that they did in that hospital, it was a you know, university hospital, learning hospital, is they would um, send a culture of the cells, of the you know cancer cells, um, to the lab, they discovered that his cells had unusual immunological properties, <clears throat> and they were actually fighting the cancer. Right, so they thought, oh, this is really interesting. Let's study this, and they made what's called an immortal cell line for his cells. Many people might have heard of Henrietta Lacks. She yes. was the donor for the first immortal human. Immortal cells, human immortal cell line. 
cell line made from uh, mortal cell line made from human cells. Human cells are less robust than a lot of animal cells. So the animal cell lines came first. Um, and this was what this means is the cells can survive and reproduce outside of the body. And it's very important for research purposes. So they they did this and then and they never got his permission. They were supposed to get his permission. They never did. And they were uh, they then um, patented the cells and made a lot, a lot of money doing that. The, the researchers had moved at that point to UCLA. John Moore at that time was definitely living in Seattle. I don't know where he had the surgery. I think it was, might have been California. I don't know. But he was living in Seattle. They were in UCLA. They had moved. So UCLA and, the, and these researchers got this patent. It was very valuable. And John Moore was getting very suspicious because they were making him fly down every six months and doing all these in, uh, invasive procedures and and all this stuff. And he kept saying, aren't there doctors in Seattle who could be following me? And they were like, they were convincing him that they were doing cancer treatment. They didn't tell him they were continuing to do research because of this cell line. At a certain point, they realized they had not um, uh, gotten his consent and they asked for his consent, which he did not give. And at that point, he was really suspicious and he hired some lawyers, a lawyer to find out what was going on. And his interest was in this violation that he had been violated. That why were they, and they were making him fly down at his expense, no less. You know, it was like, what you know, why am I inconveniencing myself in all these ways? And and this is terrible that they did this to me without my consent. Yeah, yeah. The lawyers were much more interested in the profit motive here, and they were interested in uh, who owned those cells, right? Who should profit? Which is a different thing. Mm. Profiting from a patent is different from owning the cells. And this was something that the jurists didn't seem, who heard the case and the lawyers did not seem fully to understand most mm. of them. So what happens and what interests me is the narrative that comes out of this. Both sides used the metaphor of bioslavery and drew on like the 13th and 14th amendments. Mm. And one side, John Moore's lawyers said, John Moore owns his cells, if these people are allowed to have this patent, then they're owning, in effect, John Moore, and that's a slippery slope to bioslavery, right? If they can own his cells, can't we go down that slippery slope so they're owning him, which really misunderstands what a patent is, right? They don't, you don't own the cells. The other side said correctly, no, if, if um, you know, you're confusing what ownership is and what a patent is, and the real danger is if you say John Moore owns his cells, that's a slippery slope to bioslavery. The idea that any, you know, that his cells could be owned is a slippery slope to bioslavery. To me, this is all science fiction. It's ridiculous to say that if you say you're owning cells or whatever, there are other problems. There are big problems. And my interest is in how that set of questions, and this is, I'm writing more about it right now, how that set of uh, questions deflected what to me should have been the debate. And the debate should have been around what patents were doing. So some people were worried, oh, if we patent living organisms, we're going to devalue life. That's one argument. We can have that argument. My concern is much more what patenting did to the economy of healthcare. And the ways in which um, 
the increasing expense of healthcare, which patents greatly contributed to, and the whole industry of biotech greatly contributed to, how that uh, uh, exacerbated already inequitable, the, the you know, inequi racial inequities that already existed in the US. We saw this with COVID. Who has access to state-of-the-art healthcare? Who can afford that? And if you divide that by race, you see, you make very visible. You're interested in science. This is statistics. This is data. You make very visible the inequities in this country, the way structural racism works. And I believe that these patents, that once we allowed for this exorbitant, um, you know, multi-billion dollar business to, to evolve in that way, it greatly contributed to those inequities. It also made research more difficult. I believe in a much more cooperative model. And in fact, the earliest patents uh, that there were on living organisms, well, the very first one was um, was on a bacterium. But when they, uh, it was when they started doing genetic engineering or, or uh, molecular, uh, what's it called, molecular cloning and that sort of thing. And it was happening in California, um, Stanford and UCSF. And when they started patenting all of that, one of the big complaints was there was a, a man who had been running the Stanford department and his philosophy of science was collaborative. And the reason so much of this research came out of this group was because they were collaborating. Once you start introducing patents, you interfere with that model of science. So I have those two objections. My big one is to the racism, but, I'm, but I also think science should be much more collaborative and and um, people should share their uh, their discoveries more than they do and their innovations. Yeah, so let me push on this a little bit, Priscilla. So it, there, there's a bit of science fiction going on. Uh, artificial intelligence is really advancing. And one could argue a human is a compendium of information walking around. Right. And suppose we invent a scanning machine, like in an airport or something, and you walk through it, and the machine has all your information. You know, right. It Correct. can basically recreate you uh, if it wants to. Um, at that juncture, there are multiple questions, right? Uh, one is, as technology advances at such a rapid pace, regulation is never going to keep up with it because regulation, I mean, we got a bunch of idiots in Washington trying to make policy. They don't even understand the internet is not a you know bunch of tubes or whatever. Um, so there, there's a big competence gap between policymakers and technology, right? And right. we are sort of exponentially increasing that gap. Right. So, so, so where do you come out on this? I mean, where are we heading in terms of information, privacy, legality, and all of those things. Uh, and that's exacerbated in the US by the fact that we have private healthcare. Um, I've given talks on this, and when I'm in like the UK, people are, and Canada, people are, are somewhat less concerned about the information getting out because one of the main problems with that information getting out is being denied healthcare for pre-existing conditions or even conditions you don't have, but you have a predisposition, a gene that might or might not turn on, you know, and then you suddenly don't get healthcare. So that yeah. is a very, very big problem. 
I do think, so again, I don't think patenting is the problem there. I think patenting is a problem in, for other things, but I don't think patenting is what makes that information get out. Uh, that information, we need to figure out, and I don't have an answer to this, but we do need to figure out how to keep that information private, right? When somebody, I don't want to, <coughs> excuse me, I don't want to see machines. I have enough trouble with the TSA machines that, you know, <laughs> expect you when you go through them. I certainly don't want to see TSA getting my information. Um, but, I, you know, I think that I think that that information is so easy to misuse and misunderstand and manipulate um, that you're absolutely right that there has to be. And there are there are big ethical debates going on about all of this and how to keep it private and you know people who uh did the research for uh, mapping the human genome um you know the ones who had their genomes mapped and some people published it they chose to do that right mm -hmm. there there are measures in place that are at least ostensibly um keeping that information private but on the other hand with how easily information gets out as we have seen with the recent <laughs> supreme court Draft the big case. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's not, you know, information gets out, and uh, and we have to figure out big time uh, how to deal with all of that. And and this is again what again my what I do research on. This is again what I would you know keep saying. Communication is so important. People, given that this information is going to circulate, at least we have to understand what it means. We have to understand, for instance, if you have, you know, in most cases, if you have a, a, muta a particular genetic mutation, say for a, a, one of the BRCA uh, genes, BRCA1 or 2, if you have that mutation, it means you're more likely to get something than someone who doesn't have that mutation, but it's not a guarantee that you will. Right. And still, more people who have that mutation won't get that disease then will. It's just a higher percentage will. Right. Yeah, <laughs> statistical probabilistic question. So so, so I want to um, go to your book. Um, I didn't realize, I thought this was recent, Priscilla, but this came out in 2008, you said. <laughs> um, contagious, cultures, carriers, and outbreak narrative. Um, so this is very topical. <laughs> Exactly. A lot of people have been worried about this for, for a long time. And we have now clear evidence that this is happening. And I, I strongly believe we, this is just the first iteration. There are going to be many, many iterations of this behind this. And so, so, so where do you think, where hmm. do you think we are in 2022? And where do you think we are heading? Great question. Um, when I wrote that, so I defined something called an outbreak narrative. And it was um, a, a story that started in the science and moved through, um, did exactly what I'm talking about, moved through the mainstream media and popular fiction and film and picked up a lot of misinformation along the way. It was, you know, I consider stories and language to be technologies. They are crucial, they're important, 
the story of the outbreak narrative, where the outbreak starts, how to treat it, all of that, very important for epidemiologists. It was an epidemiological story. Very important in order to identify a story quickly and a, a problem, sorry, quickly, and how do we address it? What, what did we, where did this come from in the past? What did we do? What worked, what didn't work? The problem with any technology is it helps you see some things more clearly and other things get blurry, right? If you look at a microscope, you see some some details, you know, in much finer detail, and then you don't see a whole picture. And that's right. exactly what happened, among other things, with the outbreak narrative, right? So on the one hand, you think you know what to do, you miss other clues that might be important that tell you something else is going on. Um, Gay-related immunodeficiency, GRID. Uh, it allowed you to see much, that was first name of HIV, first name given. That allowed you to see much more quickly if you were a doctor and a gay man walked in with certain symptoms to your office, you could diagnose them more quickly, very useful. On the other hand, because everybody was so focused on the name gay part of that, on this is the population we're seeing this in, nobody thought as quickly as they might have of the blood bank, as you know, and a lot of people got sick and died because of that. So that's an example of what I'm talking about. With the outbreak narrative, one big problem is you start when there's an outbreak. You don't look at all the factors that um, the, sci the scientists who you know originally circulated this notion of emerging infections and pandemics and you know the thing that we just lived through, which is what the outbreak narrative is about. Um, the people who did that were saying we need to take a bigger look. We can't start with the outbreak. We have to look at the ways in which our world is shrinking and we're more and more connected and we have better transportation and we can move microbes very quick, quickly around the world uh, with goods and people. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, the population is growing and we're moving into areas that um, haven't been developed in the past and we're encountering new microbes and we're changing the environment, which is also creating a culture of you know, microbial growth. So we need to address this problem um, in terms of the environment, in terms of how we're using the environment, in terms of how we're circulating around the world. Um, lots of things, right? Climate change, all of that is a big part of what, what creates an outbreak and what turns an outbreak into a pandemic. Our healthcare systems, the fact that you know large groups of people don't have access to state-of-the-art healthcare. And so things get into a population and um, they, you know, et cetera. So the outbreak narrative did not talk about that. It kept our attention on the smaller thing. Mm -hmm. I do believe that some of that was available, I mean, was operating. Um, when, for instance, one, one convention of the outbreak narrative is to say we're at war with our microbes. And what that does is it, deflects responsibility from, you know, it's human beings who are moving these microbes around. There aren't microbes out there ready to get us, right? And that sounds silly and it sounds obvious, but it is amazing how much the way we talk about something influences um, how we see a problem. So for example, Joshua Letterberg, who was um, the main person behind the scientific meeting that circulated this question, and he was very good at getting publicity for, you know, his his projects and his and things he saw as problems. He was a Nobel laureate microbiologist. 
he wrote a piece in the year 2000 published in Science Magazine. This is a Nobel laureate scientist writing in Science Magazine, a piece called Infectious History. And what he says there is perhaps the most sophisticated thing we can do is first of all, to stop thinking about us, them, you know, we good, microbes evil, and microbes are more complicated, our relationship to microbes are more complicated. It also abdicates human responsibility for the problem. And he says, what we should do, he says, most sophisticated thing we should we could do, one of the most one of the most sophisticated things we could do is change our metaphors. We should stop talking about being at war with our microbe and think in ecological terms. What I think, so what I saw in 2022 and COVID, I saw two things. I saw one, we were continuing that story. Um, part of that story is also stigmatizing certain behaviors, certain populations. We certainly saw that with the anti-Asian sentiment in Europe and the US, especially the US, but other places. So, you know, stop. The way people talked about wet markets as though they're some like barbaric thing when all a wet market means is, you know, that we have, that we're selling um, meat or, you know, whatever. I mean, we have wet markets in the United States. Let's just say that it's a much broader term than people understand. Mm -hmm. So that's an example of the kind of bias that gets perpetuated by this story. On the other hand, I did see people talking about climate change as related to this problem and that we need to address this problem in much larger terms. I saw journalists writing about that, which you know is, is a positive change from when I first worked on this. Um, I saw people talking against the war metaphor and saying we need we need to speak differently and therefore think differently. Um, or you could go the other way around, think differently, which you know, speaking and thinking are in a are in an egg, chicken and egg uh, relationship. Yeah. Um, I did see people talking about that. I did see people talking about structural racism and the need to address our social problems as, you know, uh, as, as one of the things that creates a pandemic. People don't, you know, didn't use to make that con uh, connection. And so I do see us moving in the direction that I advocate in that book um, increasingly. And that I see as a positive change. And I really hope that what COVID did, COVID-19 did, was bring out a lot of the deep um, inequities in our culture that need to be addressed because they shouldn't exist, but that if we address them, we will have the added benefit of addressing a lot of the problems that are feeding um, the, the things that cause outbreaks and turn outbreaks into pandemics like global poverty. Yeah, I mean, yeah. there are a lot of different issues here, right? So I would say, I mean, this is why, you know, touching back on Spencer Wells' work, if individual people have a reasonable understanding that the genome is pretty much the same, we, we have 8 billion clones running around the world. They have segmented themselves to 200 countries, to segment them, themselves to end religions. I don't know how many there are, but there are three major ones. Um, cultures, languages, class system, education, wealth, gender. <laughs> uh, the Grand Supreme Court is uh, is working on that as well. Um, and so, 
So the segmentation schemes that we worked on for 300,000 years, but 300,000 years ago, they were all sort of the same. Um, you know, the clans fought against each other. We have a Dunbar number of 150. When it gets about 150, they start to fight. Um, but we, the, the modern humans have taken that idea and very finely segmented themselves. Uh, actually, it's my neighborhood against her neighborhood thing now. Uh, and so that general idea, if we can replace that idea that you are nothing special, <laughs> come with another 8 billion, uh, you might think so, but fundamentally from a scientific perspective, there's nothing different. Actually, the Homo sapiens went through a bottleneck of about just 15,000 samples just uh, 200,000 years ago. So it's almost like inbreeding, <laughs> you know, 8 billion people that we have. Um, that, that fundamental understanding could actually potentially, I hope, change some things. I it's interesting. Um, the book I'm writing now is called Human Being After Genocide. And it begins with that that debate that was happening um, post-Nazi, right? How do we, and, and, and uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki also are in the mix and lots of things, the Japanese concentration camps in the US. But for the UN, the early UN human rights debates, the, the big bad wolf was uh, Nazi Germany, mostly, not only, colonialism actually was also racial colonialism. Um, and that came in in a very big way in the early, uh, the first like decade and a half of the UN debates. And one of the things that people were trying to say, Julian Huxley was, Aldous Huxley's brother, was a, who was a biologist, was a big proponent of this, um, that, and he was the first, um, the founding director of UNESCO. And UNESCO was supposed to get, teach people about science so they would drop their prejudices. And I'm writing a, a book about why that didn't work, hmm. why that was a faulty assumption. It was a very pretty assumption. I wish <laughs> it were true. You know, I mean, I'm with you. I would hope, but unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And I'm writing about why. And part of the why is not understanding the way science gets refracted through hmm. a cultural lens and what you need to do I mean, I, if you're if you're asking, do I have a solution? I do not. I'm analyzing the problem. Um, I, I my solution is that you that you really need to um, that you really need to understand that bigger picture. Hmm. That that you cannot understand the scientific um, information in a vacuum, and that's that's like my. That's I can summarize my whole my whole message of today's conversation is that. Yeah, that's a that's a great insight, uh, Priscilla. So, what you said was, um, you know, science getting refracted with the with the cultural lens, and if you're on one side of that lens, you have some expectations of information going through that. On the other side of the lens, what others see are quite different. Uh, and if you don't understand both sides of this, then you become less effective in in uh, providing that information to the, to the larger 
masses, so to speak. Right. Right? And even one's own biases. You know, yeah. what, what I try to say is one, I mean, the more I can see my own biases, the better my thinking is. And if I'm a scientist, if I were a scientist, I would want to know, I would want to be looking. I mean, we all have biases, like, yeah. absolutely. I would want to be looking at my biases because my biases, just, just from the point of view of being a good scientist, not even a socially responsible one, just a good scientist, or, I mean, I don't think those things are separable, so I shouldn't have said it that way. But <laughs> in terms of like, I, I will understand better why an experiment maybe isn't working the way I think it should, because I brought a particular assumption or bias to that. Bias doesn't necessarily mean a racial bias. It could be anything, right, that I have brought to that, and therefore I am not seeing accurately what is in front of me because of how, you know, what the, the assumptions, the values, the just assumptions that I have brought to that experiment. So the more we can analyze our biases, our assumptions, where they're coming from. Not only will I hope the world be a better place, but we'll also do more accurate research. Yeah, I can anticipate your answer on this, but I just want to conclude on this. So academics, you know, we see confirmation and confirmation biases right. all the time. Right. Uh, it's a club um, to get tenure you have to publish in a channel <laughs> that's accepted. Um, so that is sort of like a religion sometimes, I think. Uh, academics is like a religion. And once you, you know, sort of get baptized, then, you know, you're doing that thing. Uh, that also poses some problems, you know, right, for general public, right? So if they if they sort of catch on to that and say, all these guys are saying the same thing all the time, they publish the same thing, nobody's challenging anything. It seems like religion in some ways. Mm -hmm. How do you respond to that? Um, I think that there is some validity to that because, um, but only a little. I, I do not, <laughs> science is not a religion. Yeah. It is a belief, it is a community, I mean, or multiple communities. And within any community, you reinforce certain beliefs, values, and assumptions. So right. if, if we, you know, religion does it, science does it, um, critical race theory does it, you know, everything has its blind spots. There is, you know, my, my field, you know, we all have our blind spots. Um, my goal as a scholar is to keep looking for mine, right? Yeah. And get better at what I do by, by that, by confronting those assumptions. And I'm wrong, you know, far more than I'm right. In fact, I've been just obsessing on, is it Luigi Luca Cavalli Sforza or Luca Luigi? I think it might be Luigi Luca, but anyway. So I obsess on these things and that's just a, a small one, not to him, I guess, but not to me either, but whatever. Um, but, but what I would say, and this is my, going back to my example of why Darwinian science and creationism are not, should not be taught on a par as alternate sciences. Mm. They're belief systems, but they're different belief systems. And that comes down to what constitutes evidence. What evidence do you have for that? 
And there is tested evidence for the Darwinian, you know, science, some of which is wrong, some of yeah. which we're going to keep discovering, you know, we're going to keep changing. That's one of the beauties of it. Whereas religion is, you're being asked to believe this on the basis of uh, some stories, right? And I'm not going, I don't want to go after someone's religious belief. If I don't know what's out there, I can't say that story's wrong, but I can say it hasn't given me the same kind of evidence for the creation part of that story that Darwin has. Darwin and, and what has come after Darwin, right? And and that, that has to matter. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Priscilla. Thanks so much for spending time with Thank me. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Good to meet you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.